Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. When you think about what makes you a healthier person, you probably think about how many cheeseburgers you've had recently versus how many kale salads, or maybe how much exercise you've done, or, or what pills you're taking. What you might not think about in terms of how it affects your health is whether you're at the top or the middle or the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum. If you're in the middle, you have eight fewer years of healthy life than if you were at the top. That's Michael Marmot, the president of the World Medical Association. And eight fewer years of healthy life means earlier onset of decline in grip strength, earlier onset of difficulty walking, earlier onset of decline in mental function, and of course, shorter life. Eight fewer years of healthy life being in the middle compared with being at the top. And that's graded. The closer you are to the top, the smaller the decrement. And he says these divisions play themselves out in our workplaces. So there are noticeable gaps between people in middle management and CEOs, all of whom have plenty of money and have no problem putting food on the table. Marmon has written a book called The Health Gap, and he argues we need a whole new way of thinking about health because most of us just don't realize the tremendous power of having power. We calculated in Britain that if everybody had the low mortality of the top 10% based on education, there would be 200,000 fewer deaths each year. Wow. Now, translate that to the U.S., five times the population of ours, that would be one million fewer deaths each year. That would be about 2,500 in the U.S. deaths every day due to having health that's below those at the very top. Now, I think a lot of people would be surprised about that because CEOs, I think of anyway, as having a tremendous amount of stress in their lives. We need to think about stress in a different way. Stress does not equate with being busy. The key part of stress at work is lack of control, not having a lot to do, but little control. How many CEOs do you know that are scrambling to get down to the bottom of the heap? Whoever right. spread the rumor that it's more stressful to be at the top than at the bottom? People are scrambling to get to the top of the heap because they have more control over their work environment and their lives in general. I saw an interview with a very rich person in the financial sector, and essentially what she said was, when you have that much, you feel you can tell anybody to get lost right. because wealth gives you that cushion. Hmm. You have control over your working life. You can make the decisions, and that's a good deal less stressful than somebody else making the decisions for you. Has this gap in health outcomes gotten worse in recent years as the gap between what the how well the top people are doing and how well the people at the bottom are doing that has certainly opened up monetarily? Has the health gap also opened up? The health gap has certainly opened up. I don't think it's only due to differences in income. It's what income is correlated with and disempowerment, lack of control, worse social conditions. So the health gap has opened up. And think in the U.S. of the rise in mortality in non-Hispanic whites right. age 45 to 54. And what did they die of? They died of drug and alcohol-related poisonings. They died of suicide. They died of alcoholic liver disease, and they die of 
external cause of death, the other violent deaths. That's an epidemic of despair. Mm -hmm. That's people disempowered. Why would people kill themselves with drug and alcohol or other ways if life were working for them? And that increase in mortality is bigger and bigger and bigger as you go down the social hierarchy. So the gap is increasing between those with more education and those with less education. So once you know about this gap, which you have very clearly sketched out, what are the kind of creative solutions to closing it? If we see it getting ever wider, what are the prescriptions for you know doing a little work on this gap? The reason I wrote the health gap is because the evidence convinces me that we have a great deal that we can do. And it goes right through the life course. It starts with a, what I call equity from the start, give every child the best start in life. We know that there's a very clear social gradient in measures of early child development. The higher the income or the education of parents, the better do their children do on social, emotional, behavioural, as well as cognitive and linguistic development. We know that parents can be better parents, but we also know that parents' ability to be better parents is actually affected by degrees of poverty and social disadvantage. Reduce parental poverty and you'll find that early child development improves. But in the meantime, we know that good services can support parents and can help children's development. So there's a great deal we can do. Now, in the U.S., child poverty, where poverty is defined as less than 50% of median income, is higher than in just about every other rich country. Child poverty in the U.S. is higher than in Latvia. You've clearly made a decision as a country that you're tolerant of high levels of child poverty because you could do something about it through the tax system, but you've decided not to. And that high level of child poverty is damaging children's early child development. So there's a great deal that one could do because the evidence shows it. And then when we look at working life, what we see in the US as in Britain and some other countries, a segregation. There are jobs that are really interesting, really well paid and for skilled people and increasingly poorly paid, low status, boring, repetitive jobs that are insecure at the other end. And that's damaging people's health. So we need to look fundamentally right through the life course at what we can do. But the evidence shows there's a great deal that we can do, but we have to want to do it. Well, it sounds like what needs to be done um, to really kind of close up the gap is rethinking communities, making communities more resilient. And it, it sounds too like a lot more kind of uh, services within communities, bringing them into communities where they don't exist right now, establishing them. It would make community life a good deal better for everybody. Look at what happened in Baltimore with the riots. The precipitant of the riot was the killing of a black man in police custody. But the cause, the underlying cause, was the inequality. There are parts of Baltimore that are leafy, beautiful places to live, and there are parts of Baltimore that have been condemned by the emergency services as not fit for human habitation. Hmm. And what you see when you get that great inequality 
is urban unrest. So life could be a good deal better in communities and health would improve if we were to put more investment into communities. Do you see ways in which technology can help? Because one of the interesting things that you've pointed out is that technology right now, uh, at least when it comes to health, often tends to serve the rich, both the technology of medical care, but then also you know, if you're rich, vitamins are frequently added to your food, uh, bacteria is removed from your water. Can we get technology to also work for the poor? Well, certainly, given those things that we talk about, one of the things I say in the health gap is that the poor have to do too much work. That it's all very well to say, take responsibility for your own life. But if you're rich and you go and buy food or turn on the tap and drink water, you know the food is microbiologically pure and the water is safe to drink. Mm -hmm. If you're poor, particularly in a poor part of the world, not just in the U.S., that's not true. You've got to boil the water. You've got to purify it. You've got to somehow find the money to buy bottles. or And the food, you've got to take extra precautions because it won't be... We're actually asking the poor to do too much work that we don't ask the rich to do. So that kind of technology, which is pretty low-level technology, can make a huge difference. Are we, in general, as a world, paying attention to this gap in health? One of the problems has been that people say to me in many countries, including the U.S., you're talking about poor health for the poor. I'm not poor. What's this got to do with me? And my response, take the U.S., if you were an average 15-year-old boy in the U.S., your chance of dying by the age of 60 is 13%, 13 out of 100. Now, you might say, is 13 out of 100 a lot? Well, it's double the Swedish figure. It's higher than in Costa Rica or Cuba or Chile. In fact, there are 194 member states of the World Health Organization, and the U.S. ranks 50th on this measure. 49 other countries have better chance of a 15-year-old boy surviving to the age of 60. The U.S. is doing something very wrong for the average, not just for the poor. And that means we're all involved. It's time to say, look, it's not only about the poor. It is about the poor, but not just trying to improve health for those in poverty, but trying to improve health for all of us. And that takes attention right across the social gradient and right through the life course to the kinds of things that we've been discussing. Sir Michael Marmot is a professor at University College London and president of the World Medical Association. He's also the author of The Health Gap, The Challenge of an Unequal World. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Years ago, Becky Canis Margiota was a stockbroker. And every day she would have to cross the 14th Street Bridge, which connects Virginia and D.C. And every day she saw this homeless guy selling newspapers at a stoplight. 
And I, I struck up a conversation with him one day. And I was like, do you need anything? He's like, I could really use some sunscreen. And the next day I brought him some sunscreen, you know. And and my thinking at the time, and I had come from the military, you know, and probably a more conservative background. And truly my thinking was like, God, someone just needs to help that guy get a real job. You know, that really was my thinking. But eventually she realized the problem was a lot more complicated than that. Margiotta later left her job as a stockbroker and started working for the organization now known as Breaking Ground, which helps the homeless. That's how she found herself in Times Square, surrounded by dozens of organizations trying to solve this problem. Whether it was a soup kitchen or drug treatment programs, you know, that kind of stuff. And our original theory was, could you knit that together and have that result in a quantifiable reduction in homelessness? And quickly we learned that the answer was no. Then at a conference, she stumbled onto a game-changing idea. Instead of shuffling people into temporary shelters and drug rehab programs, you could put them in permanent housing first and then start dealing with addiction and depression and whatever else. And I scratched my head and I said, Why aren't we just doing that? Why don't we just do that? I think that would be much more effective. This idea, which seems like when you first hear it to be an incredibly expensive one, became known as Housing First, and it's been spreading around the country. Margiotta led a successful campaign to house 100,000 homeless people in 2014. Studies show that offering Housing First can actually cost taxpayers less money because services for the homeless add up quickly. Take shelters, right? We've got winter coming, and very soon they are going to be busting at the seams. For many people, they think, wow, you know, just open up this place, throw in these beds. It should be pretty, you know, cheap. That's Dennis Culhane from the University of Pennsylvania, who has studied the cost of housing the homeless. In fact, running a facility and all the costs associated with facilities and meals and laundry and staff and security, it actually is much more expensive than you would think, and certainly per bed, it's more expensive than a conventional apartment. But it's not just shelter beds that are costly. It's hospital beds, too. Many of the conditions for which a homeless person is in an ER, you know, they can't self-care, and they end up getting admitted to the hospital when they might not need to. Furthermore, once they're in the hospital, they end up staying longer than the usual patients because they don't have a place to be discharged to. When you add it all up, Culhane says that chronic homelessness costs about $20,000 per person per year. And the elderly or people with mental health issues, that's going to cost even more. According to his research, it costs less to house someone permanently. Though in expensive cities, that's not necessarily an easy task. You've got to find the permanent housing. Usually runs somewhere around twelve dollars to $14,000 per slot. You're looking at something like eight to $10,000 maybe for the subsidy and four to $6,000 for the support services. The problem is that just because a solution is cheaper does not mean you can actually make it happen. The resources and dollars are siloed politically, and you can't take money that could be saved in health care and move it over and pay for housing. There are frustrating obstacles that exist in the whole political process, which, you know, they exist for a reason, but which I think are are frustrating. But in my conversation with Housing First advocate Becky Canis Margiota, she argued we shouldn't just provide permanent housing for the homeless because it's going to save us money. It's something we as a society have already agreed that this is a good thing, that 
if worst comes to worst, we definitely don't want people to not have a home. And so as taxpayers, if you add it up, there's millions of people who get housing subsidies. They qualify for it because their income is below a certain threshold, and they go and they apply for it, as, as anyone would do. But the people who are on the streets in many cases, or people who have been on the streets for a long time, because of the disabling conditions they have, um, don't necessarily have the wherewithal to go apply for this housing voucher. So it's already there. It's already being paid for. It's just that the people who we would assume would go get that don't have the wherewithal to do so. How well have New York um, and other communities that have tried the housing first idea, how well have they done convincing other cities that this is the way to go? That's a great question because so innovations and new ideas, the way that they spread, right, with, you know, the diffusion of innovation curve is somebody has a great idea. And in, in this case, it was Dr. Samson Barris, like, hey, what if we just house people first and then took care of the rest afterwards? And then there's the early adopters who, who they know a good idea when they hear it and they're willing to try it. And that certainly happened in New York City and, and lots of other places did housing first as well. But it takes that first group having a positive experience and being able to show, like, look, we did it and it works for the next big percentage of the population to take that on. They right. need to, they don't, they can't just see it or they can't just hear about it. They need to see it. And that's what we saw with the 100,000 Homes campaign was that at first it was just 20 cities that were like, you know, that guy that's been on the streets about 24 years, I think maybe we could house this guy. Mm. At that time, back in 2010 when we started this, there were plenty of cities who thought that was just, they don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Right. But once they saw those early adapter cities doing it, they, they wanted to get in on the action because they were like, oh, maybe this could work. So it, it just worked exactly like that from one city to the next. And a big part of my job was at first was telling those stories of look what New Orleans did. Look what Washington, D.C. did. Look what they did on Skid Row in Los Angeles. But then when you start really seeing an innovation take off, you start to see uh, that they're talking to each other. And, and once you lose control, that's when you know it's really going to it's going somewhere. Should there be conditions on housing, like somebody has to go to drug treatment in order to keep their housing, or somebody has to get treated for mental illness if that's something they suffer from, um, you know, in order to stay in a home? Well, the the state of the art programs that I'm aware of, um, what they they have some conditions, and the conditions are you have to pay your rent, just like you and me, um, you know, and you, you don't and and don't hurt anybody, you know, don't don't break things, don't right. hurt anybody, you know, it's it's basic things like that. So, I personally, you know, uh, know plenty of people with substance abuse issues who are in their homes right mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. right? And so detangling behavioral health issues from whether or not someone should be in a home, I think, is an important step to take as a society and realizing that is a health issue. It's a public health issue and a health issue. And putting someone on the streets doesn't do anything at all to help that person with that health issue. Let me ask you a bigger picture question. What do you think that people who've always lived in a home, you know, who've never struggled with homelessness, what do they misunderstand about the homeless who probably uh, they come in contact with on a daily basis? Yeah. Okay. So uh, housed people, people who are housed, a couple things. One, anybody who is in the, on the streets now was housed at some point. You know, right. nobody was born onto the streets. So I love it. In other countries, they call it rehousing people. And, and it, it points to that. Um, the second thing is there's really, there's multiple flavors of homelessness, but there's two really big flavors of homelessness. There's one flavor of homelessness where it's an economic short uh, shock, and it's just for a very short period of time and a teeny bit of money can help somebody 
pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get back in a home. And that's the vast majority of homelessness that we see. And we have and need to have more programs that give that little short infusion of cash and get back on your way. That's that really interesting the, that you say that's the vast majority. They just need like that little boost. Oh, yeah. You know, we have car insurance in case our car gets in an accident because that's an economic shock, right? right. And it's like, oh, okay, I wow, $10,000, but I've been paying my $100 every month. and But we don't have housing insurance per se, right? There's no homelessness insurance that we can purchase as a society. We haven't insured against that. But the other flavor of homelessness, and this is the one that I know near and dear to my heart and know well, that is not what that is. It is not a short economic shock. It is not you just need to get a job. It is a lifetime of trauma. The person who did the psychiatric support for back when I was on the street of, of, of Skid Row uh, did in-depth analysis of everybody that we were working to house. And it started almost at birth, you know, multiple layers on layers of trauma, of mm. violence, of family, of, you know, one parent going to jail for the rest of their lives, school failure, the school gives up on them, mental illness sets in, substance abuse sets in. This didn't just happen overnight. And it's literally, it's to some of the saddest stories you could ever imagine. And hearing, and it's 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 not something um, to to think like oh pull yourself up by your bootstraps is just it's absurd. Right. It's just absolutely absurd that they're not in a position to do that. And it's gotten framed somehow as whether or not someone deserves housing. And I think part of what we did in the 100,000 Homes campaign was reframe that of, hey, this person is actually incredibly fragile medically. And let's not talk about whether or not they're drinking. Let's talk about the fact that they have stage four cancer. Let's refocus our attention on the, on the real problem here. Becky Canis Margiota led the 100,000 Homes campaign. She is co-founder of the Billions Institute. Becky, this was great. Thank you. Thank you so much. listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There are headlines all the time that sound irresistible. Seven foods you should be eating. New study reveals the tie between exercise and turning back the clock. There's a vitamin that's going to help you lose weight. And maybe there's a kernel of truth there. And maybe the kernel is a lot smaller than you think it is. For scientists who are doing this sort of research, there's tremendous pressure to publish. There's pressure to reach clear-cut conclusions. And sometimes the pressure is too much. John Ioannidis is a professor at Stanford School of Medicine, and he worries that many of the studies that are being published have serious issues. John, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. You have written about this issue of uh, replication, the gold standard of science. What's going on that we're not able to replicate all the studies that are published in prestigious journals? I think that there is a replication crisis and it's becoming uh, more visible as science is becoming more successful. So, you know, we have more scientific studies, we have more scientists, we have about 20 million scientists publishing papers in the scientific uh, corpus. So most of us, we're chasing to find something new, something that would be exciting, something that would be a new discovery, very promising. So this is not bad. This is... um, what science is supposed to do. But at the same time, that introduces a a multiplicity problem. We're just running a huge number of analysis, uh, millions and billions and zillions of them, 
also there's lots of biases. There's biases in the way that we may design our research. Um, I have a bias when I design a study. I try to find something. I don't right, try, try to, to find nothing at all. To find nothing. Right. <laughs> Um, and, and then there may be biases from sponsors, from people who have some other conflicts in trying to move an agenda forward. So when, when you combine all of that, even though science is the best thing that has ever happened to humans, we do get a lot of things wrong. I'm interested in why this is. You know, when a study comes out and it says these vitamins are really good for you or, you know, eat this fruit, it, it really it really changed the people in the study. And that is later proved to be wrong. Do you usually find that the sources of the funding may have consciously or unconsciously influenced the outcome? Or is it just people cutting corners or really, really wanting to get tenure? Like what's happening? Clearly, as scientists, we're under pressure to deliver. Recently, we looked, for example, at uh, randomized trials, which are the best type of study in terms of how well you can control the experimental conditions because you randomize people to two groups. Head-to-head comparisons of um, a drug sponsored by some company versus some other competitor. Um, So we found that 97% of these studies they get favorable results for the sponsored product. Okay, so the sponsored product's looking pretty good the way this is set up. No matter what. So I, I, I would even question, why should we run this study if, if we are about 100% certain that we will get the right result? Well, that, I mean, that brings up the question, are people entering into the studies basically knowing what the outcome is going to be in order to, like, validate their theory or their product or the investment they've made? In, in many situations, it may well be true that uh, it's not seeing is believing, but uh, believing is seeing. So researchers and or sponsors, they, they may have some very strong preconceptions. So unless there is some pre-specification about uh, what is it exactly that we're studying, what is the outcomes, how exactly are we going to measure them, what is the analysis that we're going to do, it's possible to get any type of result and conclusion just by changing a little bit the data collection or the outcome emphasis or the analytical machine that is applied to the data. And once people in the public or even doctors get an idea in their mind of like, this is a particularly helpful vitamin or this food is really good, even when that study is, let's say, debunked, another study is run, it it doesn't come out the same at all. How hard is it to pull back on what people already believe? I think it's pretty difficult. So the the worst part is that confusion that remains. And um, that confusion remains both in the public arena, but it also remains even within the scientific literature. So let's take one example of um, something that has been thoroughly uh, refuted. Uh, a very nice hypothesis, beta-carotene can reduce cancer risk substantially. So that theory was proposed in uh, the late 1970s, early 1980s. There were observational data supporting it on multiple fronts. And then we performed a, a number of randomized trials, very large randomized trials, very well done, they showed absolutely no benefit for cancer prevention by giving beta-carotene to people. 
Is there still scientific literature citing the original claims that beta-carotene is, is a chemopreventive agent? There is. There's many papers that continue to cite the original claims as if the randomized trials never happened. Once you have something that is wrong published and circulated in the literature and in public view, it's very difficult to get rid of it completely. I'm going to look at uh, myself a little bit and just ask you, what's the role of journalists here? Because the media is also very quick to say, tomatoes are great, you should eat them. Or vitamin C is fantastic, it'll help you live longer, you should take it. Or almonds or spinach or whatever it is. What role do you think the media plays here? Clearly, you have a a pivotal role in in the whole process. And I believe that uh, one part of the solution would be if journalists were a bit more critical uh, towards that literature, the the way that it is presented. Sometimes uh, there may be some very obvious clues that this is entirely uh, unlikely to be true, but often it it takes uh, a bit more of critical scrutiny of the evidence. So obviously information on the sponsor is useful to know. It would be good to know how big the study was. What is the uncertainty about the result? So, you know, there's some confidence boundary around that result usually, even in the statistical analysis. What type of design was it? Was it an experimental, rigorously controlled design? Was it just an observational study? So it may be asking for a bit more work, and I think that that might require some communication between journalists and other experts to try to get the story right. Now, you've been writing about this issue, talking about this issue, uh, the problem of not being able to replicate scientific studies for a long time. Do you see things getting better? I mean, money is still an issue. People still want to get professorships at top universities, and that's not getting any easier. So what's the direction of this? I think that there's many signs that uh, things are are getting better. Uh, I think that there's uh, far more scientists being sensitized to the prevalence of these problems. There's many initiatives to try to improve our research practices at multiple levels, at the level of uh, open science, uh, having more transparent processes, better peer review, uh, sharing data, making protocols visible, many efforts at reproducibility checks in, in various fields where scientists are trying to replicate or reproduce or reanalyze uh, different studies and uh, data sets. So we, we do see a, a lot of progress, and uh, that progress actually is happening across very diverse scientific fields. Finally, uh, if you saw an article in the paper tomorrow and it said, this vitamin is amazingly good for you, it's going to do, you know, it's going to really help your health in some specific way, what would your first thought be? I'm biased. Uh, Probably I'm not (laughs) going to put too much trust to that. (laughs) I I have to read, obviously, the story, and I I would like to go and and read the paper. Who knows? I mean, this is the... The wonderful thing about science that uh, we are continuously proven to be wrong <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, we can get things better and, and more accurate and, and more correct. But as a prior, just listening to that title, I, I would say that no, uh, there's, there's no need to rush to the store. <laughs> John Ioannidis is a professor at Stanford School of Medicine. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.
we're on Twitter where we occasionally tweet about scientific discoveries, but only the ones that we have really given a skeptical eye to. We're at iHub Radio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. I'm going to tell you a story now in which nothing is quite what it seems. A few years ago, a 16-year-old was sick in the hospital with an overdose. And this was not an overdose of pain pills or illegal drugs. This was an overdose of antibiotics. And it was not the overdose that landed him in the hospital. He was already sick with a chronic condition. That's why he was there. It was the hospital that administered the massive overdose. The doctor didn't mean to prescribe it. The hospital pharmacist did not mean to fill it. And the nurse certainly didn't mean to administer it. Bob Wachter, a prominent doctor at the hospital, became convinced that this disaster never would have happened if it hadn't been for the increasing power of computers to shape doctors' actions and their decisions. His concerns led him to write a book called The Digital Doctor. He's also the chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Bob, welcome. Thanks for being here. It's a great pleasure. So I want to get more into this particular incident and how it could possibly have happened. But first, do you think that for most doctors, technology is actually changing what it's like to care for their patients Um, and maybe not in the way they'd hoped? I'm sure every doctor would say this has changed their work and their life in ways that are deep, profound, and larger than they had expected. I think most would say, as I do, that I'm glad we have these these machines in our in our professional lives, that it's better than it was without them. It's pretty easy when you're thinking about and writing a book about some of the problems to sort of say, let's pull out the cords and bring back the three-ring binders and the post-it notes. That's not right. We have to get to a better place, and we have to be digital. But I think most doctors would say this has changed the nature of being a doctor in ways that have more harm and more negative consequences than they had anticipated. Mm. I'd say the biggest one is the direct relationship with patients. You know, if you go in and see your doctor, there's a pretty good chance these days the doctor will ask you a question, and as soon as you start speaking, the doctor's head will be down in his or her laptop, right. or even maybe even turn around and have, have, have her back to you uh, while typing away. And many of our doctors spend the day doing what they used to do and then go home for two or three or four hours of digital work. Uh, nobody really anticipated that, and there are a lot of people that are pretty unhappy about that. Well, I actually uh, know a doctor who has told me um, that, you know, periodically the software will change in the hospital that she's at, and she'll have to go to this really long training. And then when she's done with training and, and you know, implementing it, that the day feels like thousands of clicks and thousands of screens that you're working through, um, you know, as you see different patients. And I don't know, I think at least for her, it's a very tiring experience. It's tiring. And most of us went into medicine because of sort of the meaning and purpose of taking care of people when they're sick. And so it's distracting. It feels like what you're doing is feeding the computer rather than doing what you believe you should be doing, which is paying attention to people and their problems. And some of that's inevitable. You know, we're in a data business. And so 
the computer has to be fed, and a lot of the information about patients is going to live on the screen. That's inevitable and, and to some extent is fine. But the degree to which it has shifted the center of gravity from the doctor and the patient sitting knee to knee talking to one another to the doctor and the computer having this deep, intimate, and, and love-hate would be the best thing you could say about it, relationship, and therefore away from the doctor and the patient relationship. I think that's been surprising to people. It's not all the computer's fault in a way. The computer came in and became an enabler for other parties, regulators, quality measures, billing mm-hmm. people, malpractice attorneys, to say, okay, now the doctor's on a computer. We can just ask the doctor re- to record this one more thing. But there are about 100 one more things. And by the time you're done, uh, the average emergency medicine physician clicks about 4,000 times in a 10-hour period. Oh, my god! I came upon an ad last year for a doctor at a brand spanking new modern hospital. And the advertisement said, come to our hospital. We have a beautiful hospital and beautiful radiology suite and terrific ORs, and we have no electronic medical record. (laughs) They were advertising that you could use pen and paper here. (laughs) So let's uh, back up and talk for a second about uh, patients who are sick in the hospital. I mentioned earlier the story of a patient in your hospital at the University of California, San Francisco, Pablo Garcia, who's 16 years old, chronic condition, and somehow through a series of human slash technical errors, he ended up getting nearly 40 times uh, the medication that he should have been given. Explain to me how that happens in an age where there should be so many checks on that kind of mistake. Well, there <laughs> there are and they all failed. And it was in hearing that story, that was the moment I said, I need to write about this. Uh, I was at our uh, patient safety committee meeting, and you'll be reassured to know that when there is an error in a hospital today, we spend a considerable amount of time dissecting it and trying to figure out what happened and where did the system fail. Having been at those kinds of meetings for 20 years, I can tell you that many of those meetings ended up with the, the, the final statement being, if we just had computers, this wouldn't have happened. You know, the doctor's handwriting wouldn't have been an issue. Right, right, right. We would have, you know, the system would have known the patient was allergic to the medicine. So finally, we have computers. We have the, you know, we're one of the ten, 10 top hospitals in the country. We have the best computer system that a lot of money can buy. And here I heard about this case in which a, a kid comes into a hospital. He's supposed to get a certain dose of this particular medicine that is is, is one pill twice a day. But because of the way the order is written into the computer system, it's a little bit vague as to whether when when you're writing orders for kids, you sometimes write them in the dose per kilogram of body weight, because obviously the dose for a premature infant and the dose for a teenager have to be very different. So you have to give the medicine uh, adjusted by the kid's weight. Because it wasn't really clear on the screen, the doctor was distracted, she ended up writing a dose for the, f- the full dose, which then got multiplied by the kid's body weight, which was 39 kilograms, or about 80 pounds. The, the end result turns out to be that is a, a prescription she wrote for 39 pills. Okay, happens, human error. The system has a lot of built-in protections to prevent a human error, which we all make, from reaching a patient. The first protection is when she clicked to sign the order, an alert fired, and basically said it was an overdose. But the alert is incredibly dense, text-heavy, and it turns out the doctors and the nurses get hundreds and hundreds of alerts a day. About 95 to 98% of them are false alarms. And we've all gotten used to saying, yeah, yeah, alert, click out of it, just the same way you do with your I accept 
button when you download an app. Okay, so it makes it through a doctor, makes it through a pharmacist for both those reasons. In the old days, it would have gone to a person called a pharmacy technician who would have seen an order for 39 pills and would have said, what the hell? Right, Tapped right. the doctor on the shoulder and said, you know, this seems crazy. And the doctor said, oh, my God, glad you caught it. Now, of course, it goes to a $7 million robot <laughs> that when it sees an order for 39 pills says in robot language, thank you. And then the most interesting part of it was it went to a young nurse who was on an unfamiliar floor. There was a shortage in, in one floor. She was what we call floating. She sees an order for 39 pills. That's a crazy order. That would be like driving down the highway and seeing a sign that said the speed limit was 2,500 miles per hour. Yeah. She looks at it, and she says, this is weird. And then she starts doing what humans sometimes do, which is to say, it's an unfamiliar floor. The kid, maybe he's on some sort of odd research protocol, but I will check it against my technology. And the technology here is called a barcode, which is no different than what you see in the supermarket. She barcodes pill number one, and the technology says, well, that's not the right dose. The right dose is 39. Why? Because at that stage of the medication safety process, the job of the barcode is to make sure the nurse gives the drug exactly as the doctor and the pharmacist wrote for. And that's just enough of a prompt for her to say to herself, well, I guess it's right. It's sort of the, Those are the most dangerous words in medicine, by the way. I guess it's right. And she then tears open 39 shrink wrap packages, puts them in a cup, half fills mm. up a cup, and gives it to this kid who takes every single pill. When I asked her what she was thinking when she gave this kid the 39 pills, she said, well, I thought what a good kid he is to take all of these pills. Mm. And then she stopped for a second and started crying. Because obviously, in retrospect, she knows this is crazy, and she knows she shouldn't have done it. But the key is to try to put yourself in her shoes where the technology is telling you something and people defer to the technology because we've gotten so used to it being righter than we are. Uh, that's a real danger. So that's that was the moment I came home that, that night and my wife's a journalist and I said, I have to write about it. And she said, well, the only way to do this is to speak to a whole lot of people. And so I spent the better part of a year speaking to CEOs of tech companies and speaking to the IBM Watson people and going to Boeing and see how they did how they did cockpit computer design and speaking to doctors and nurses and patients, trying to make sense of how this could happen. Well, I want to talk to you about some of that uh, tech and medicine. But first, just back to one element of, of your story, uh, the alert. If you give way too much medication, maybe double or triple uh, what the normal dose would be, uh, you would think there would be an alert, and, and there is. And as you said, there are thousands of alerts all the time in hospitals, whether they're for nurses or for doctors. But people have learned, ignore the alerts. Exactly, exactly. And it's it, nobody was, was crazy here. Part of the challenge of medicine is we have an enormous amount of uncertainty. And so the situations that occur where it's absolutely unambiguously wrong, the patient is allergic to penicillin and the doctor has just written a prescription for penicillin and an alert goes off, those we tend to catch. The problem is the alerts also fire, and, and it's not unreasonable, the alerts fire when the heart rate seems a little too high, when these two medicines might interact with each other, probably won't, might interact with each other. And so we've calibrated the alerts to, to, to go off for a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacist, anytime anything might be wrong that we think the person should know. That's not unreasonable. When you're sitting in a conference room planning the alerts, it turns out in real life what you then do is overwhelm the doctors, nurses, and pharmacists so they stop paying attention to even the important ones. In our intensive care units at UCSF, we have 70 beds. 
Each bed has a bedside monitor. You've probably seen them that fires an alert if the heart rate is too high or low or the blood pressure too high or low or the oxygen. In a month at UCSF, the alerts go off. An alert or an alarm goes off 2.5 million times. Oh, my God. There's one every six minutes. And talking to a nurse, talking to a nurse about this, and the question was asked, you know, the alerts are going off every six or seven minutes, and, and, and it seems kind of crazy. How would you know that something was wrong with your patient? The nurse thought for a second, and then, then she said, silence. If there was no alert, I'd be really nervous something bad was happening. Oh, my gosh. That is, uh, on Seinfeld, they call that bizarro world. Yeah. It's completely yeah. upside down, but that's the situation we've created. So let's talk about technology and medicine, because it's not like uh, tomorrow or next week, uh, this is all about to change and uh, technology is going to be departing the medical field. It's just going to get more intense. You talked about IBM Watson, who is, Watson has been used at Memorial Sloan Kettering to help think about uh, cancer diagnosis and, and all over the place. So what do you think when you see, well, this is this is the beginning. This is our toe in the water of technology. There's going to be way more tech companies that want a piece of this very very big industry. Well, I'm very excited about it. It's it's funny. Toward the end of the book, I wrote a chapter that a few people said, "Well, it almost sounded like it was written by a different person." Because I came to believe that this is all going to work out, and at the end of the day. Patients are going to get care that's better and safer and less expensive because of technology. And and we know we have to work out all of these bugs, whether it's the alerts or or creating a system where the doctor and the patient actually look each other in the eye again. We know, and we, we sort of know we'll eventually get there. The question is, how do we make it through this sort of adolescent phase with the minimum amount of carnage? And I just didn't see people having mature discussions about that. They kind of took the polar views of either, you know, it's all great, it's all fine, you know, don't be a Luddite, or let's go back to paper. It's it's much more nuanced than that. What I came to recognize is that what we're going through is an exaggerated version of what many industries go through when they computerize. There's a concept uh, called the productivity paradox. And the paradox is everybody's expecting computers will, will come in and make things better and cheaper and, 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 and standardized stuff. It sounds good. And then they come in and a few years go by and nothing good really happens and everybody scratches their head. In other industries, including financial and, and travel and retail, it did get much better, uh, but it often takes 10 years. And the 10 years, two things have to happen. One is the technology has to mature and get better. The second is much more interesting, which is the, sec the second is that the work has to be reimagined for a digital age. What typically happens is people look at the way they used to do it on paper. They say, okay, we'll put in computers, and they just ape the, what you did on paper now with computers. Maybe it's a little right. faster, but it's no better. That's why you need people coming into the industry, and they say, well, why do we do it this way? And the answer is, oh, because we've always done it this way. And they say, no, that's crazy. Let's really reimagine what it's like to be a doctor, a nurse, and probably most importantly, a patient, and use the technology in the service of providing better and safer and less expensive care. And I really do think we're going to get there, but we're, we're, at, we're at a difficult phase right now. Um, if you were a patient, and as you say, there are all these new computer systems that even doctors and pharmacists and nurses are wrestling with. What, as a patient, do you think we should be thinking about? Well, this will seem odd from a guy who just wrote a book about some of the challenges and problems with computerization, but I actually would not go to a hospital today that did not have an advanced electronic medical record, barcoding, smart pumps. I do think on net it has it makes care better 
and safer. And it's easy to get romantic about the old days. The old days were pretty bad. I mean, the old days were where you could not read people's writing. You know, the chart got lost. That was certainly lost. the old joke that doctor's <laughs> handwriting was uh, right, legible, of course. right? Of, yeah. Of course. And, and, and no joke. I mean, you look at mine. It was terrible. And so <laughs> I think it's better. I, I probably would try if I could not to go to a hospital that had just implemented a new computer system because it really does take a year or two uh, to settle in. I think looking at my own place, you know, having a, a good system in a hospital that's been using it for four or five years, I can begin to see the productivity paradox get resolved and begin to see how we're going to end up in a substantially better place than we were in the beginning. But when we put it in, we were really pretty naive about, all right, there's a computer. That's great. We did not think deeply about how it changes everything. Bob Wachter is a professor. He's the chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California at San Francisco. And he's also author of the book, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. Bob, thank you so much. This was great. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much. We've got a link to the whole story of the 16-year-old that we were talking about who overdosed on antibiotics, and it is a riveting story. That's on our website, innovationhub.org. You can also find this segment to share or to hear again. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Jonathan Gang. And I want to welcome our new listeners this week who tune into Oregon Public Broadcasting. We are thrilled to have you. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI Public Radio International.